So everybody keeps on saying that we need at least one million jobs every month, and everybody keeps on asking where are the jobs. So what's your take on on that? And second thing is Mudra Yojana, where rows and rows of people have got jobs, and about 80% of them are females. Do you feel that you know more and more people are making a living, which is not being counted as creating a job, and that's where there is a mismatch. And uh, the last point was on agriculture. What do you feel? Modinomics has done on agriculture because this is clearly one sector which really needs to flourish and uh, what needs to be done on this ground. Okay. So I think there are two, three uh, issues there interrelated of course. I think the first point is on jobs. So you know, I think Vajpayee ji had said famously that the job of the government is to facilitate the private sector to create jobs. Um, Unfortunately, I just want I'll just cover on first principles and then come on the data as well. Unfortunately, in India, and it's an understandable mindset, the idea is that government will create jobs, especially in the relatively impoverished, as of now, you know, Gangetic Plain states of UP and Bihar, which is why a lot of the kind of uh, zero-sum politics happens on lines of caste. You know, how to have patronage politics, how to have reservations, understandable from from that that vantage point. Uh, but actually, jobs are created by the private sector. The government's role is to facilitate a situation whereby it is profitable for an entrepreneur to hire somebody, to put it very uh, briefly. So 1 million jobs, I think the jobs number, we are right now in the process of getting better data. It is being debated a lot in the pink papers, the financial press. In, in, in India, almost every able-bodied able male, as I said, works. It, the female labor force participation is a different issue. 90% of people work. The issue is not whether uh, you can get a job or not. The issue is what salary will you get the job at? And what kind of benefits, protections will you have? Like, can you just be summarily fired one day? Is there any due process at all? I mean, between having extreme labor protection where you cannot get fired for life, and uh, which is what the Indian kind of socialist model did for 5% of the people, and for 95% of people could be fired on any day. What we are trying to create a model is where for 100% of the people eventually, they can get fired but after say some process. So that they have a notice of say 2 months, 3 months and there is therefore some healthy churn in the labor market. So I don't even understand what it really means to create 1 million jobs per month. If the question is whether it is to create formal jobs, then yes, people are now starting to count it through the EPFO rules. And the process, uh, the problem there is people are saying, are we double counting, are we not double counting? Uh, because people who earlier had jobs and only now their employer has entered the EPF kind of fund uh, as a result of formalization, GST, demonetization, whatever, then in that case, it's not really a new job, which is a very classic case of, you know, damned you do, damned you don't. So uh, now they're saying this, this formalization has happened because of these policies and therefore these are not new jobs. When these policies were being done, they were saying formalization benefits were. So, so I think right now we are in a stage where data is very unclear. Um, so the only way to create good jobs is to have economic growth and have targeted interventions that we can have mass we can have mass manufacturing. Because what happens is in classical economic theory, Ricardian theory, a country is supposed to produce where the comparative advantage is. But the problem for poorer countries which are starting the process of industrializing, often their advantage is in the natural resources sector, agriculture, metals, minerals. So if you take that short term optimal situation, you kind of defeat your long term consumption maximization. Because you're not setting your foot on the first ladder of the manufacturing uh, process. So you enter manufacturing, you learn some skills. V.S. Naipaul famously said when he went uh, to Pune, uh, I've been reading about him and Vajpayee ji, obviously, like many of you also have been, I'm sure. He went to Pune, he wrote this in this book, The Wounded Civilization. People who had a manufacturing job, they came across as individual men. They, come, they came across as people who were doers and, I'm paraphrasing, positive about the future, unlike the uh, bureaucrats and thinkers and writers. So, you know, luckily I am both a writer as well as in the private sector, so I don't know what Naipaul would have classified me as. Uh, so, so it's very difficult to say about jobs with any kind of precision until we have better data. Uh, more, uh, more and more jobs are, are happening in the formal sector, whether they were earlier there or not, we don't know, but this is a, this is a good trend to celebrate. Uh, you cannot create 20,000 rupees jobs for everybody if the economy is not growing. The numbers just don't add up. Um, as far as agriculture is concerned, 
I think uh, the government has now increased MSP as they promised by 50%. And I think they've played it well in a, in a political context. They didn't do, they didn't raise it for three, four years and they've raised it in the final year. So they've kind of fulfilled their promise while at the same time, had they raised it earlier, it would, not, it would have been economically counterproductive. So I don't know whether the uh, average farmer will appreciate this or will find this to be a bit too late. I'm not sure about that. But from an economic point of view, it was well done. And it is uh, an MSP increase while not being economically optimal fully is still better than a national level loan waiver. So in that, it's 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 a it's a improvement on what was done, for example, by Chidambaram uh, before the 2009 elections. Um, on, on agriculture, they are doing good work in terms of irrigation, which is another infrastructure improvement. It's slow, boring, has to be done. Uh, micro irrigation, drip irrigation, uh, Mr. Modi speaks about a lot. He gives the example of Israel often, when drip irrigation is there. Uh, he's name quoted the fertilizers, so you know the, some of the stealing has stopped there. Uh, but I think agriculture is really the default sector of India. So we have to maximize the wealth of people who are now farmers whether they remain farmers or not. It's an important point to get. We have to maximize the wealth of people who are now farmers, whether they remain farmers or not. Because if you are going to maximize the wealth of farmers and make sure they remain farm farmers, India cannot go to the next stage of industrial development. Because if 50% of the people are working on something which other countries are doing with 1% of their people, the technology is already there, obviously you're wasting 49% of human potential. The, how, the question is how do you sequence this change? And I think, you know, at some level, probably not this government, but at the later stage of development, we'll have to introduce just a normal tax on agriculture, the way uh, all sectors are taxed, not more, definitely, not less. And most farmers will not pay that tax because most farmers will be below the exemption limit. But at least the rich farmers in Punjab and Haryana and other places should, should pay those taxes. Um, so, because Imagine, we are trying to say on one, on one hand, we want to get people out from a de facto disguised unemployment sector into a more productive manufacturing and then services sector. And on the other hand, you are taxing manufacturing and services and you're not taxing farming. But then at the same time, you also have to liberalize all kinds of procurement. And you need to make sure that when the prices go up a lot, you don't have export bans. So you have to be fair to the farmer in that sense. When there is a market surplus, then suddenly, you know, governments over the years have banned or limited exports. Because there is a constant political pull between serving the farmer and serving the urban poor. So I think with technology, with commodity derivatives, agricultural derivatives, with PDS, with Aadhaar, we are reaching a point where we, where procurement can be separated from distribution, PDS. Uh, so we are, I think we are putting the infrastructure in place for, for good growth in agriculture. But it's a, it's a very, very important sector where you have to take the steps very thoughtfully because if there is a political backlash, not only will that program of yours fail, the rest of your program can also fail. So it's a very complicated way to go about it. On Mudra, see on, uh, on Mudra, uh, the numbers as you said, obviously there are a lot of uh, crores of people have gotten small loans. Uh, yes, I think uh, the female uh, employment, whether it is showing or not. Interestingly, when I gave you the example of Bihar's, 25% uh, of Bihar was working in industry in 1800 and was less than 10% in 1900. Research shows that most of the women who were working in 1800 in uh, Bihar in industry were women who in their long afternoons were weaving and sewing. That, it was a small scale industry of that age. And once Britain kind of colonized India and directly imposed free trade on us, uh, and they were ready with their Manchester mills and we had no idea what, what just happened. All these women in all these now poor parts of India suddenly lost their jobs. So, so you know, mudra might be in a way to kind of reverse that. But beyond that, uh, yes, they are definitely creating jobs, but I don't have the data to speak confidently one way or the other. Uh, I have a question about your ideas on the demographic dividend because that is going to put great pressure on our agriculture as well as living space and in, on the environment at a scale that is unprecedented in human history. So, I mean, do you think the classical economics will work, especially when the industrialized nations today could export their surplus population, which we cannot? 
Uh, I think that's a good question. I, I think uh, it will not be an issue for the simple reason we already have agricultural overproduction right now. Uh, we are trying not to have agricultural overproduction, but every year we have bigger and bigger, bigger bumper crops. The problem with farmers right now is prices are falling because of immersarization. And there's a long, you can generalize this problem, there's a long uh, study of economics which shows that whenever there is a commodity constraint, human ingenuity comes with new production techniques. It happened with oil in the US, out of nowhere fracking was invented and shale was pumped out of American Permian basins and Texas basins. There was a Danish female economist called Esther Bosserup. Who, what you are saying is basically neo-Malthusian that you know that if you have a lot of pollution uh, population what happens to productivity can people really live and she, she said she her she's actually famous for agriculture only that whenever population increase agriculture innovated to keep up with uh, food requirements and the same happened with the Indian Green Revolution and I don't I, I think the record by now is very clear that uh, lack of food is not going to be an issue as far as space is concerned See, the population density of India is around 400 people per square kilometer. So just to give you an idea, what does that mean? That means that 1 kilometer into 1 kilometer is 400 people, which means 100 meter into 100 meters is 4 people, not 40, 4 people, it's a square. So 100 meters into 100 meters is 4 people. Now let us say 3 fourths of India goes to forests, to agriculture, to infrastructure, to this and that. If you just have even less, 50 meters into 50 meters, so 1 fourth of that is four people, keeping three-fourths completely for non-human living reasons. Space is not a problem. Space is not a problem. It looks to us to be a problem in cities, but you can just do the math. Space is not a problem. In fact, I was just reading a report yesterday that in Britain, which is also relatively dense uh, compared to the US or Canada and Australia, maybe not as dense as India today, uh, the, United, the United Kingdom is going to have the largest forest cover since the Norman invasions. So space is not an issue. Uh, in, in fact, we, are going to, we will exploit that with, with self-driving cars and better roads 10-15 years from now. I, I think it will become fashionable for everybody to have a small little castle. Uh, for the, uh, so, so I don't think uh, space and agriculture, commodity or resource or land constraints is not an issue. And that kind of economic development is happening globally, not just in India. Especially placed to our strength because we don't have a lot of natural resources and land compared to Russia or Canada or other people. So I don't think that's an issue and the economic uh, record and pollution will be an issue, but pollution is not a macro issue, it's a local issue. Pollution has to be solved at the municipal level. Uh, so it's not, not so much of a global warming issue or an all India issue, it's like how do, you, how do some states get together and uh, make sure that farmers don't burn stubs in Haryana and Rajasthan, so that the smog does not come to Delhi in winters. Um, so, I, I think the record by now is already clear. India already is 10 times more dense than it was 200, 300 years ago, and it is already 10 times as richer as it was 10 years, uh, 200 years ago. India's per capita income in 1990 is almost $5,000 today in PPP terms, and it was around $500 in 1800. So, till about 15, 1500 to 1800, we fell in absolute terms, and after that, we continue to fall behind the UK and US on relative terms, but in absolute terms, we, we've increased since around 1870. We are 10 times richer almost than we were 200 years ago and probably 10 times as populated, whatever the number is. So I don't think that's an issue. So you just mentioned about RCEP, whether India should sign it or not. About what? RCEP, yes, 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 yes. And as we are aware, India already is having FTA with several countries, be it ASEAN, yes. be it Japan, Korea, China, uh, Sri Lanka also. So we don't have with one with China, I think. No, no, China. Yes. Sri Lanka? Sri Lanka was the first one we signed, yes. So, government is negotiating ASEP very hardly. And so, what repercussions do you see if India signs ASEP? Because some chapters in ASEP has already been concluded. Yeah, so I think ASEP. And, uh, and second question. Whether FTAs have delivered sufficiently if we do not go into these regional rate agreements like ASEP, like we opted out of TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership initially. So what is your take on that? Yeah, so I mean RCP and TPP are very similar. TPP, the US has now left, uh, so it remains mostly an Asia-Pacific deal anyways. As I said, I don't think we should sign RCEP right now. I think the government is negotiating very strongly, you are right. But 
the, the, the things that the government is asking, I don't think the other countries will agree to. So I think the deal will fall by its own as far as India is concerned. And if it goes through, I'm pretty sure we'll have enough protections because this is the government which actually started in increasing tariffs last year. So it would be very strange for the government to then go and sign a free, agree free trade agreement which exactly undoes that. So I, I, maybe they don't want to publicly say they want to get out of RCEP, they just want to create a situation whereby others just move on. Because then if you publicly kind of say no to it, then uh, our Prime Minister cannot go to Davos and say India stands for globalism, right? So the, some, some kind of uh, things have to be projected which are not always necessarily the case. Yes, I think it's a it's a full-hearted effort to get what India wants. I don't think that will happen, and therefore India will not join RCEP. But if India joins RCEP, getting what we wanted, that's great. The second question was about. Yeah, I think FTAs on whole have uh, probably not delivered so much for India. I see India does not have a geo-economic view of this. It makes a lot of sense to have an FTA with Sri Lanka. It makes a lot of sense to have an FTA with Bangladesh with Nepal. Because see, when you, once you have a free trade agreement, you are also in your economic zone of influence. It might also make sense to have one with Australia. No, no, I know. I'm saying if we do that, that will make sense. In fact, one of the reasons why, for example, Pakistan has completely agreed, uh, refused to do an MFN uh, or a free trade agreement, much less that with India, is because they understand once you are economically integrated, the two Punjabs and rest of northern India, with it will be very difficult uh, beyond a point to actually have uh, war at even at a subdued level because the, the two commerce lobbies on both sides will say let's not do this uh, and which which you know which means effectively from their point of view saying the Kashmir issue is over um, so so for India it, it, it's okay if we do it with friendlier economies or smaller economies uh, in a certain sense it's okay if we do it in Japan and other countries where we have certain safeguards but I think not to be too polite or uh, indirect about it, we want to avoid competing with China's Chinese manufacturing for the next 10 years. So whatever is required to do that, let's do that. Hi, I'm Kamal. Uh, thanks for your wonderful presentation. So you spoke about incentives and as well as uh, reduction of corruption at the top level. But when it comes to governance, uh, at least I personally believe that the elephant in the room is the bureaucracy. Where does bureaucracy... What is the bureaucracy? Is the biggest... Uh, the elephant in the room when yes, it comes yes. to governance, at least, when talk of governance. Uh, where does bureaucracy fit into your framework? And I mean, I know that there have been some steps in the right direction, for example, lateral entry is being yes. invited. But if you look at the broader picture, recruitment, the incentives mismatch, and as well as the way it is structured, structurally, I mean, there are brilliant people in there, but if you look at the structure, it's still there's still a problem at the lower level, middle level, and the uh -huh. top level. So, do you, do you see the need for a big ticket reform in bureaucracy? It obviously has a lot of positives for uh, general quality of life of people, but even from an economic point of view, do you see the need for it? Yeah, so absolutely, police, uh, judicial and administrative slash bureaucratic reforms, I think are or should be uh, the next big ticket reforms. Uh, because that goes on with what, that goes along with what I was saying, you need to have a state which is limited, which what a lot of free market people would say, but also very effective and strong. So where it intervenes, it needs to intervene properly. And the incentive structures of our bureaucrats are absolutely mismatched, that's true. Uh, the top bureaucrats in India need to be paid 10 times more. It's, a, it's not a fashionable thing to say, but the smartest people are no longer entering bureaucracy. Uh, they are quite smart, but I don't think the smartest people are entering bureaucracy. I think that's a fact today. Um, at the same time, the lower levels, grade C and D, do not necessarily need to have that same level of pay raise. I think if we just continue, continue with inflation, that's fine, inflation adjusted. So the pay commissions have not, have not dealt with this kind of wage compression reality. I think the State Bank of India CEO gets paid one-tenth or one-hundredth of whatever the HDFC top CEO gets. So it's just, it's, it's absolutely bizarre. And uh, of course, people should do it out of a sense of public service, no doubt. Uh, but I think, like, Paying your top 1000 bureaucrats 10x is a drop in the bucket to make sure you get really good expertise, experience and advice. To me, it's an absolute no-brainer which we are not doing. Uh, Singapore, which has, which has the world's best bureaucrats, pays them a million dollars plus. Um, so we should pay our top bureaucrats that and then be much more aggressive on going after any corrupt one of them. 
you know, then make an example out of them. So that's that's one. And also too much transfer happens. You don't allow any vertical expertise to be built up. You're right, some lateral entry has been allowed of late. Uh, the government has been deliberately kind of slow about it. See, when, whenever a government regime changes, uh, there are a lot of bureaucrats who are probably friendly with the previous dispensation. It takes time for confidence both sides to develop. Um, and people who are senior anyways, they're at 56, 57, they're about to retire. So you can't really coax them too much as well because they're anyways close to the retirement unless you really take drastic action. Um, so, so I think a lot needs to change. Uh, it, we are in the very early stages of it, but we need to definitely make sure that more people get vertical expertise, remain in the same lateral, remain in the same domain. You don't go from fisheries to uh, defense to commerce and then suddenly you're discussing FTAs and then you're, I mean, it's just, uh, it's okay to do it at a high level, but if you have to get into the nitty gritty, it takes time. And then we need to make sure we pay them well. Uh, maybe we need to be, uh, you know, not hire new people at the grade C and D level. Uh, because that's where a lot of the uh, pension and other costs go. So I, I think I think that is one big thing that we've not really quite started on, and it, it needs to happen. So I had a couple of questions. I just quickly put them. One is you said uh, PPF is your way of calculating the employment, right? No, not my way. I was saying that the, what this is the only numbers we have right now. Right, but there is a calculation that every job you create at a higher level and we are talking about, you know, let us just take an uh, average uh, uh, IT guys or in there are 10 jobs created to learn and these are jobs which are not accounted for, these are not having any PPF, PPF, whatever is the case, right? So you have to multiply that many jobs. So whenever you are saying a, a figure, so is that figure, you know, Having that figure calculated or are you just talking about the... No, I don't think the EPFO numbers people discuss has the multiplier effect there. Right. So you are right about that. I don't think the number is there. I'm not even sure what the exact multiplier is. There is clearly some multiplier. Oh. But we don't know what the multiplier is. So if the BJP government says something, the Congress will say it's not true. If the Congress, it's Unless we have better data, it's very difficult to say right now. I, th I think we just have to accept that right now. We don't have good enough data on jobs, period. Right. And we are in the process of now... Uh, creating more regular surveys and, and hopefully in the coming years we'll have more clarity on that. Uh, the second thing is for uh, agriculture. You, you're comparing uh, US which produces its own grain and also you know exports and India which is not even able to sometimes you know maybe uh, Well now we are food sufficient mostly. Yeah but there is a lot of difference in land area, there is a lot of difference in population there is and when we talk about land area we're talking about different kind of landscape like Kerala is filled with water right now. You can't think about what agriculture produce it produces, right? So we have to think about all the things here in India. And I don't think it's an idealistic comparison that we No, my have. point was not to compare like to like fully. My point was simply that there is a large country which has its food needs met with 1% of its people. China is intermediate between India and USA. I don't know what the numbers for China is, maybe 10 or 15%. Maybe in India, it's 35 or 40%. So clearly, there is a correlation as a country gets richer, there's a lower percentage of its workforce that works in agriculture. So my point is, Jai Jawan and Jai Kisan is great, but the Jai Kisan should also remain if he no longer remains a Kisan. That's the point. There is nothing special if he remains a Kisan. And that is what a political rhetoric has been over the time. It has been... Uh, it has been, it has lionized a certain kind of rural poverty and it has kind of looked down upon trade and commerce, which has changed now. In fact, economists have written books on this. Deirdre McCloskey has written Bourgeois Dignity, uh, saying that uh, an, an, an economy or a society that is, looks down upon money making does not end up having a lot of money making, which uh, sounds quite logical to me. So, so it's, not, it's not about US or India, we can do it to China also, uh, similar populations. The point is the percentage has to go down of people who are working in farming. More mechanization needs to happen. And there is disguise unemployment there because that technology is already there. Indian does not need to reinvent tractors or bigger combines or harvesters. It's already there. We just, how do we go about this transition is the question. I, I think the question is, is there anything specific especially specific. that I would focus on what the uh, Narendra Modi government has done? Please have a seat. Better than uh, Dr. Manmohan Singh's government. Please. How has demonetization helped the economy? Okay. 
So first is the comparison and then is on demonetization. I think the comparison, I think the biggest change, I would say if you want to take an ex a compare and contrast, Modi and Vajpayee on one side and Manmohan Singh, Sonia Gandhi on the other side, would be the focus on permanent infrastructure assets. So I mean, uh, on one side we have the Pradhan Mantri Grameen Sadak Yojana started by Atal Bihari Vajpayee and the NHDP program which has gone from highways to expressways. On the other, other hand, we have a flagship program called MGNRGA, Narega. So as it so happened that once I came back from college, I actually worked for MIT Poverty Action Lab. It's a research organization. And I literally worked as a on-the-ground research associate in the villages of eastern Rajasthan and then in slums of Delhi for about a year. And I saw in Rajasthan first-hand Narega program. Um, the rules were and they've been tweaked a bit now. And the program has now gotten less and less allocation, not in terms of absolute terms, but in percentage terms. Uh, the, what you could not use mechanization beyond a point. Yeah, I think 70, what I forgot the ratios, 60% or 70% had to go to labor. 70% I think and 30% is other you could not spend on any kind of machines, which were basically JCBs, what are called JCBs in villages. So what would happen is where the program was honestly implemented. You, I, I did a small report on this with a, with a foreign journalist for Wall Street Journal also. And we did not find like absolutely sure evidence of this, so we did not include it in the piece. We came across a woman who died of a heart attack in a Rajasthan NREGA uh, pit. Because you are basically saying the machine already exists to make this whatever small lake or small road you want to make. But don't use the machine, use a spade to, to make uh, roads or to make some assets. And as Milton Friedman famously said, you know, if you want to create more jobs, why use spades? Use spoons. <laughs> you know, like, why use, use your fingers is the next stage. In fact, V.S. Naipaul does write in Wounded Civilization that uh, in some municipal cleaner in Mumbai, she's literally picking the dust from the roads because as India is kind of creating these feather bedding artificial jobs. Um, so, so Narega was was a big kind of uh, side tracking, whereas what has happened with PMGSY and of course with highways is you connect to villages and some people uh, including Credit Suisse's Nilkanth Mishra have done reports on the PMGSY and they say that suddenly once you connect a pakka road to a village, there you see small kapde ka dukan, you see small clothes shops where earlier the women would see it. You would start seeing you know these Pepsi's and Lay's small uh, shops. A lot of things which were done in-house was now in the commercial market, which is the basic way how growth works. If you go back to Adam Smith, he writes, right, the, the specialization, the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. And the extent of the market is limited in turn partially by whether you can travel from point A to B and sell stuff from point A to B. So what happened is after PMGSY, for every 10 villages, one person could become a cloth entrepreneur and sell in those 10 villages. Earlier, all the women in those 10 isolated villages were just sewing the cloth. So just imagine the kind of waste of productivity and life hours. So I think the, and I think the reason why the Manmohan Singh government, so I don't think personally that Dr. Manmohan Singh's heart was in it, but whatever, he was responsible for it. Uh, the, I, the reason they did it was because they thought it will win votes. Um, and they, they kind of showed that there is kind of, kind of big, big program which has happened, noblesse oblige, we are giving you people jobs. And he would go to these activists and say, why don't you just give them some cash transfers, conditional cash transfers. Agar aapko asset hi banana hai, get, a, get an asset made by a proper JCB and give, these, give people you want to give proper cash transfers. So then uh, the activist uh, would, would say, well, but no, that's uh, free money. They need to work for it. And then these suddenly leftist people became rightist. We don't want to give them free money. We want to make sure that the old person works in the sun at the age of 70 till he dies. So I think what happens is when you have the mask of good intention on you, any kind of nonsense can fly. So Narega was a good example of that. So what, what the Modi and Vajpayee governments have done with PMGSY and NHDP is something that takes longer to give political uh, credit. The gestation period is longer. So it's not obvious to people that this is going to benefit us. Unless we discuss this as a community, we understand there is more education. Uh, it is difficult to appreciate that. So, so that's on the comparison point. And what you said about demonetization, I think of demonetization as a very sui generis, completely unique experiment. It had happened twice earlier in India, 
but that time the notes it applied to was not that large a part of the currency in circulation. So if you applied it to whatever 500 rupee notes in 1979, nobody really had 500 rupee notes in 1979. So uh, whereas in this case 86 or 87 percent of the currency was impacted. So it was, I don't think any economist could have thought kya hoga, it was completely a jump in the dark. As it so happened, people behaved remarkably peacefully. We have not heard of any riots or anything. Uh, now whether it was worth the trouble or not is a good question. I don't know whether we can categorically say that right now, but there seems to be a financialization. The cash to GDP ratio has come back, but a lot of the assets are not going to real estate now, they are going to say mutual funds, they are going to uh, bank deposits, they are going, people are opening banks along with other schemes like Jandhan Yojana and so on and so forth. So I think it is more of a statement ki we will have a different kind of society. It, it, it got the attention of the country completely that you know maybe pay your taxes, maybe don't hide, maybe uh, have a company that is registered. How successful it will be will depend on the other programs of this of Narendra Modi as well as whether he gets re-elected and completes this program. So it's very difficult to isolate the particular impact of demon. I see it as a larger part of a larger step towards uh, financializing and formalizing the economy. GST has still not been fully implemented. The e-way bill just came in April of 2018 and even now uh, it's not been fully implemented. I, I suspect it will be full hardcore implemented after the next year's elections. It has been 80 to 90 percent implemented and already we are seeing some benefits. At least we are not seeing those trucks on state boundaries which goes back to the first principle of their heterodox recommendation, have an internal market. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's a good step. But uh, see, the Germans made an internal market in 1818, and they f finally got the German Empire in 1871. It took them almost, in fact, more than half a century to create an internal market. So if GST and other steps create an internal market in such in five, seven years, I think we are doing well. How do you look at the threat posed by automation to the Indian growth story? Because by the time we get into manufacturing, maybe it will be too late. Right, I think that's a very good question. It's often brought up. How do you think about automation? What happens to manufacturing? All kinds of technologies are coming up, including 3D manufacturing and so on and so forth. We are seeing some early stories about Adidas bringing some production back from Southeast Asia to Germany uh, because you just, now you just need robots, you don't need a lot of hands. I, I think for India at least, automation will be a great uh, benefit because automation does, does not so much as replace people as it helps them work with people to do something more. So some people call the term cobot instead of robot, they use cobot as in a co-working robot. Um, so for, it, it is more of an issue of people who got used to $50,000 analyst jobs in Boston and suddenly people getting $10,000 can compete with them living in Bangalore. It will be more of an issue for them uh, and there will have to be a transition period on that. But for manufacturing specifically, I think uh, India has anyways so far historically in the last 10-20 years done better in higher technology manufacturing than lower technology manufacturing. The auto component, auto ancillary industry around Pune, in Manisar, in Chennai region is world class. I mean they are as good or as bad as the ones in China or Germany. Um, what we have, what, where we have failed is the mass manufacturing one. I think by the time we have very good robots that can do everything the human finger can do and all that. We still have another 10 years, at least. So, I, which is why I said for the next 10 years, if we can make sure we don't directly confront the competitiveness of Chinese manufacturing, real or government subsidized by their government, I, I think we can still uh, prevent that kind of manufacturing negative effect for the next 10, 15 years. Uh, uh, Chinese, A moderate tariff, yes. So, just, just because it's a simple, why moderate? Why not go for See the re the reason why you don't go whole hog is because ultimately the you know then you go towards the free market argument which is Frederick Bastiat the point is the point of any economic activity is not production it is consumption we don't produce to produce we produce to consume so ultimately a tariff is a tax on consumption it is called a tariff but it's basically a tax on my consumption the re what we are saying is if something is intrinsically much more important much more better produced by China beyond 20-30% also, then fine, let them make it, so long as it is not strategic, so long as it is not, you know, defense weapons or steel or iron. So the argument is therefore in the moderation of it, because the point is if you are 50-70% and not just against China, the rest of the world, you have no real incentive to keep up with technology also. 
so it is like you all have to win you are running a 100 meter race for the indian consumers rupee i'm just letting the indian manufacturer or a foreign manufacturer working in india starting in india start at meter 5 but agar meter 5 or 10 pe bhi start karke the other guy is winning then fine that's the that's the thought process uh, so the idea on this do seem to be moving forward are they moving fast enough around the early 90s it bottomed out at 100 times less almost so it actually the bottom out has already happened maybe in the early mid 90s so then they were around i don't know what 30000 dollars and we were around 300 dollars in the current dollars so the process of convergence has already started the question now if i take you correctly is the pace of convergence convergence has already started the 1000 year decline has stopped roughly at the end of this millennium 10 years before maybe and now we are converging i i wrote in that piece that it will will be 12 trillion dollars by 2030 right now we are about even at the rupee depreciating around 2.7 trillion let's say maybe 2.8 2. depending how you uh, count it to the fiscal year or the calendar year for us to go from say 2 and a half in 2017 to 2030 12 trillion dollars is 12.8% compounding in current dollar terms sounds a lot because we hear 7 8% growth but i'll tell you why it doesn't sound a lot because in the last 15 years in current dollars we've already compounded at 11% that's the reality of india we've already compounded why is that because we grow at rupee terms say 8% then there is an inflation on rupee terms which is now say 4% 12% so then there's the question of what happens to the rupee versus the dollar so for us to grow at 12 and 1/2% roughly in current dollar terms from today to 2030 which will take us to 12 trillion dollars which is more than what mr mukesh amani said 10 trillion dollars is more than what other people expect i think it's doable because what has happened without getting into too much economic details is the real exchange rate of the rupee is appreciating uh, so without again uh, when, when, uh, once the con- country's convergence starts what happens is the currency also starts appreciating not in the nominal terms not what you're seeing in 65 to 70 but in real effective exchange terms and in real effective exchange terms actually under modi the rupee has appreciated very strongly so you have to look at two things you have to adjust for inflation differences and you have to look at a basket of say six countries or 36 countries with which you trade the most and you have to weighted average by that so india some people say 15% 20% you can look at rbi numbers you can go to bis numbers so the indian rupee has already started the process of convergence and the same thing happened with china by the way after 2005 6 when they finally partially floated the currency the chinese yuan was at one point even in nominal terms 8 and a half something then it went to 6 yuan per dollar and right now it's 6.9 yuan per dollar so it actually appreciated even in nominal terms in real terms it appreciated even more so i think we will converge quite rapidly we need to make sure we build the infrastructure that's required for it the chinese have built a massive high speed rail infrastructure we are not even started yet we are still on the expressways from lucknow to east up mr modi has now inaugurated an expressway abhi tak it was from delhi noida to agra then agra to lucknow and and we are getting a the oldest expressway we have for long time is mumbai pune so if we build the exp- infrastructure if the indian people understand the importance of infrastructure and other interventions because unlike the chinese here it's a democracy here so you know if the if the politicians start realizing that this thing is not going to win us votes then beyond the point even the most committed politician will have to withdraw because they are knowing the other guy anyways will not do it what's the point of getting defeated over this so i think the indian people will have to realize the importance of infrastructure of manufacturing of education of technology and i see no reason for this to not happen i think a lot of uh, forces are coming together and indian democratic opinion is also endogenous to our growth what i mean by that is as india gets richer you have more and more of a middle class well educated who understands these policies who are curious about it and then they put the pressure on the government to do that so beyond the point it becomes a self reinforcing virtuous cycle so unlike most people i'm very very bullish about india in fact i became a fund manager in india i came back from the us 
not uh, because I am bullish about India. I am putting my money where my mouth is. I am. I have skin in the game. A lot of people tell me you are so bullish in India because you are a fund manager in India. I said it's the other way around. I became a fund manager in India because I'm very bullish on India. It's the other way around. So I, I think it will happen, but uh, we can't take anything for granted. Nothing is an autopilot. I think if we win, if the BJP wins in 2019, things might happen a bit faster. But I'm very bullish on India. I want to be very frank and clear, even if some other party wins, because that the the way the political opinion is being shaped sooner or later the pressure to implement right policies will be there yeah i think see i i don't have a very good technical technical understanding of it but i think the bitcoins of the world are being basically banned by most central banks i don't think virtual currencies are coming anytime soon i think uh, the state has a monopoly on violence and the second power monopoly doesn't want to give up is on currency it allows it allows them to monetize the deficits. The U.S. quantitative exchange buying bonds from the Treasury after the interest rates went to zero percent is nothing but printing currency. Whether you actually print it in paper terms or you you have computer entries, it's printing currency. So I don't think they will give up that power uh, very soon. Um, and there are all kinds of issues. What, you know, what if terrorists want to use it? What if child pornographers want to use it? I don't think it will happen. I, everybody was long Bitcoin uh, second half of last year. I was like, Bech to abhi, paisa le lo. but hai, they didn't listen to me. Hello, sir. My name is Aishman Kalida. Uh, my question to you is a few months back, I had read a column by senior political analyst Madhav Das Nalpar. So he had wrote that uh, the Modi government had prioritized over uh, high taxes, uh, basically black money over higher growth. And so he was uh, he was pessimist since he opined that. Uh, the Fed schemes of the Modi government require, like uh, Aishman Bharat, it required around 12 to 13 percent growth. So, you, so, what do you okay, so there are two things there about taxation and about healthcare scheme and I think you brought both very important points up. I think so one of the uh, one of the relative negatives of the Modi government that I missed out in my talk is, is right there which is on direct taxation. I think they have done a great job on indirect taxation even there there is an angle of federalism we can explore later. I think in economics there is, a, there is an effect called the Laffer curve effect. The Laffer curve effect just to make it very simple is when you cut tax rates then the tax revenue does not fall by that extent. In fact, in some cases it might even rise. So for example, if you, if, uh, like Indira Gandhi's time we had almost 100% income tax at one point, difficult to believe, 97%. So obviously nobody was paying 97% of their income. So if you go from 97% to, to you know 100% to 20%, tax rate has fallen by one uh, to one fifth, tax revenue probably will rise much. So that's an extreme example. So right now, Indian corporate taxes, for example, which comes under direct taxes, effectively is around 30%, including all the surcharges. In fact, bigger companies pay slightly lower rates if you look at the weighted average, because of they can take exemptions, they can go to Uttarakhand when they had some exemption there, and so on and so forth. America just cut their income uh, corporate tax to 21%. Uh, I think beginning of this year, January 2018. So, it to, uh, and America is a 20 trillion dollar economy, we are less than a 3 trillion dollar economy. If we really believe that a companies will, <laughs> uh, you know, companies have something called transfer pricing. So, they try to show more profits in jurisdictions where there is a lower corporate taxes. They don't, they don't always succeed, governments try to stop them. So, India will definitely have to cut the corporate tax. We've already cut to 25% for some of the smaller companies in various budgets so far. But I think they could have directly gone to 25%. I think there was a very bureaucratic approach. They thought there'll be big loss of tax revenue, which I don't think would have happened. Uh, similarly, on the income taxes, I think the top, we have a surcharge for people earning above 50 lakhs, a double surcharge for people earning above 1 crore. Fine, it's progressive, so you know, so to speak, in the sense that higher earners need to pay higher taxes. But the reality is, we are competing with high-end Indian talent who can live and work in Singapore, Hong Kong, London, New York, ten other places. And we should try to get those people here. In fact, we should try to get non-Indian origin people also to work here. So the aim is not to show that we are quote-unquote progressive. The aim should be to maximize tax revenue, and not in this year, one year, but over a medium term. And therefore, I think even there, uh, given the public services on offer, maybe the income taxes, uh, direct income taxes for individuals is also on the higher side for high earners. But even if that is not reduced that much, corporate taxes have to be cut and that is a missed opportunity so far. On healthcare, 
Yeah, I think I think growth will happen. So I think revenue will come. So in that sense, I disagree with that analyst. A broader point is there's not much debate happened. And I think that's a weakness of the Indian political system more than any one government. We have a parliamentary system. The US is a presidential system. And in, people think the parliamentary system uh, is weaker than a presidential system, but actually the prime minister is much stronger for domestic policy than the United States president because they have division of powers, they have separation of powers. So just as a point, if you just quickly compare Obamacare and Modi care, the way it came out, not the benefit, pros and cons of the policy. In Obamacare, there was debate for two years in their Senate and House. Some Democrats voted against it, some Republicans voted for it, and they, they had to give and take, what is known as log rolling in politics. Whereas in India, all policies, whether whoever is in power, is effectively formed in the PMO, and then the parliament rubber stamps it, because uh, you, of anti-defection laws, you can't go against it. You are not a prime minister if you don't have a majority in the parliament, so the two positions are interlinked. So there are many issues there, but I think as far as resources for Ayushman Bharat in the first few years are there, I think we'll have enough resources, uh, limited rollout. The longer problem is what kind of entitlement are we creating? Are we following an open-ended entitlement or are we doing what Singapore has in terms of uh, medic medical savings accounts, which has much better incentives? So without getting into the details of why a medical saving account is better than an open-ended entitlement, uh, the broader point there is we will face consequences over the longer term, but in the midterm, we'll have re uh, we'll have enough resources. So, so there's a lot of information that has come from your side today. So, I wanted your opinion on three things. So, I think we have to look at the Vajpayee regime and the Modi regime as two very distinct governments. As far as disinvestment is concerned, don't you think that the Modi government's attitude has been very laid back? Especially, they are not able to make up their mind whether they want to privatize Air India or not. When they decide to go ahead with it. The conditions that they lay down are very, uh, they're not favoring disinvestment really, and which is also the case in a couple of other PSUs I believe. The second issue is about public sector banks. Don't you think that we don't need 20 public sector banks which often serve as instruments of you know, institutions of crony capitalism and uh, the government hasn't done enough to clap them or to consolidate them? And the third thing, sir, I wanted to know from you about the economics of oil. Because I believe the government has self-admittedly said that uh, they are following a very socialist sort of approach of taxing people who can afford to pay. So, uh, or socialist. So, so the three questions are on PSUs, PSBs, and then oil. Uh, so I'll just take it in reverse order. I think first of all, I personally think uh, actually petrol and diesel in India should be taxed more, not less. Um, so this obviously is not a great, you know, political seller, which is why you know I will never be a politician. But the reason is very simple, you know, uh, besides what economics call Pigovian taxes to curtail externalities and pollution, there's a geopolitical reason as well. India needs to move as soon as possible from a petrol-based transportation system, diesel-based transportation system to an electric hybrid system, which in turn is run by even coal, Ideally, solar and wind, but even coal is better than petrol and uh, diesel-based system for the simple reason that a we are importing it from outside, which means that there is pressure on our currency. And secondly, the places we are importing from are not necessarily very friendly to us. Uh, so there is a geopolitical angle to it. So if we have lower taxes on petrol and diesel, we're just going to import more and more oil from places like Saudi Arabia and Iran, and that has uh, other long-term ramifications for. You know, social harmony and so on and so forth. So I, I, I think people can pay more per liter. Uh, I don't think it will be an issue. It will definitely not be popular in the short run, which is why the Modi government has not uh, increased taxes further, but they've not cut it either. So I don't think it's socialist because anyways, I think one or two percent of people really have their own private vehicles to drive whenever they want to, like a four-wheeler. Uh, and uh, this is the full cost of uh, what it means in terms of the country is not really covered in just the cost of the petrol. Uh, we are we are definitely more expensive if you compare us to the US on a they buy it in gallons, we buy in liters. But if you compare to Europe or other countries, we are we are approximately just there. So on on PSU and PSBs, I agree the Modi government has not been as aggressive as the Vajpayee government was as far as privatizing is concerned. That's not true for disinvestment. They've actually disinvested a fair bit. They've just not gone towards full privatization. Um, and, and I think uh, part of the reason is there is not much political consensus for that. I think part of the reason is 
quite frankly, Mr. Vajpayee did not win again, and we want to make sure that you know Mr. Modi wins again. So I, I think there is a political fear of if you privatize, what happens to the trade unions? Uh, how do they respond? Uh, is there enough uh, public uh, understanding of this issue that they'll understand? Because people will come out on the roads and they'll say, "You are this is anti-poor. You are killing jobs." Even something as uh, I think when Kingfisher Airlines, not even a pub, not even a public company, not even a government company, was about to go bankrupt, all their air, airport, all their uh, jet airways. Yes, all the yeah, exactly, all the air hostesses and the pilots were like, because in India there is just an entitlement to a job. So unless that uh, mindset doesn't change, it's difficult. On PSBs, I don't think see. PSBs again, uh, it is difficult to do without job cuts. You can combine two weak banks. How does the economics work? Economics only works if you cut down the number of branches, right? Economics works if you have fewer number of people working. So are, are we as a country right now ready for job losses? I think the Chinese did it at some level in the 90s when they went from their massive public sector uh, to to a relatively more private sector. Although now they are going back in the public sector direction. The Chinese did it. It was a it was a non-democratic system. They did it. Uh, there were millions of job losses. Uh, the the economy. They tried to control it by making sure that all of those people had a flat in Beijing or Shanghai, and the real estate prices went up. So th they tried to control it in a different manner. So, you know, in a, in a purely, if you ask me for a pure economic advice, yes, then these things should be privatized. But an intermediate way could be to create a sovereign wealth fund, to put all of them in an entity list that entity. We are already doing that. There is already a Bharat 22 ETF. Um, so we are already doing that. We are already partially there. So we are trying to monetize it and uh, financialize it without changing control of the system right now. Air India specifically, I think they have very clearly said it. they will do it. So I think they will do it. It just so happened that by the time they announced it, the last 8-10 months oil prices went up. So it, it was just uh, in terms of timing and sequencing a bad time to do it. But uh, recently, Mr. Sanjeev Sanyal said in a in a TV interaction that they are going to do it. It is very much on the cards. So I think we'll just have to wait for oil prices to correct there. Uh, there also, they can change the conditions where people, where a new buyer comes and is allowed to fire the air hostesses. It comes back to the same thing: public sector unions. I, is there an understanding of that? I, there is not because, for a simple reason, a large part of the current Indian middle class, their families became middle class because of public sector unions. It is just a reality of life. So unless there is a larger middle class based on completely private sector, which understands this, which feels more economically secure, we'll have to kind of slow pedal this. The government is not taking so much care about this falling rupee. You know, it has to be arrested and follow the rupee against Karnataka. And the army is also sitting up quite about it. It has come down to 70 rupees, which is very alarming. So on the Congress has, Congress has another weapon in their hand against. So on the rupee question, I think this is the last question, um, and, and it's a good question to take in the end, simply because it is so newsworthy right now. See, as far as the rupee dollar, again, as I'm saying, you have to look at it against a basket of currencies, inflation adjust. Um, we, we'll take one more question if Rahul allows it. Okay, so. If you look at where the rupee was in say August 2013, 68, 69, and if there is just a 3% difference of inflation between US and India, India having 3% more inflation every year, the rupee should have been at 80 right now. So a 3% more increase in inflation against another currency means your currency, other things being equal, should depreciate by 3% in nominal terms every year, which over 5 years goes takes you from 68, 69 to 80. In fact, against the dollar, we have remained relatively there in nominal terms, which means in real terms we have appreciated. In, for other currencies like the pound and Australian dollar, we have actually gone up in nominal terms, which means we have gone up even more in real terms. So yes, the Congress or any political demagogue from either side, of course, can say this, which is why, as I said, in the 1950s, one of the reasons why inadvertently the license Raj became strong was this political fear of, uh, of devaluing the rupee. It was a fixed exchange rate. People did not understand this. It was very unpopular when it happened finally in 65-66 also. And usko, to prevent that, we ended up uh, adjusting and employing much worse policies like the license Raj. 
So the rupee has a natural rate. I think it, it will not further depreciate in the coming years in nominal terms because of my understanding of real appreciation. But whether that happens or not, it has to be eventually left to the market. The, the RBI does intervene whenever there is very high buying or high, heavy, very high selling. So around 69.8, 69.9 RBI was buying actually a lot of um, rupees, selling dollars, which is why we had already crossed 400 billion dollars, I think last year in foreign exchange. And we are still around that because RBI has been selling dollars. Uh, but the, the idea for RBI is not to take rupee to a certain number, but to make sure that any decline or increase is orderly. There is no panic in the market. So uh, I have no easy answer to that except to just explain that uh, the rupee should actually have been much weaker in nominal terms against all currencies, but it's actually much stronger if you adjust for inflation and look at all currencies including the dollar. More seriously, if I ask you, what is the fundamental difference between Sonyanomics and Modinomics at fundamental level, minus corruption and chronism, of course? So, I think, I think Achyadin, you don't know when you come. Achyadin is such a... But I, I mean, let me put it this way, or since it's a very uh, fun but also kind of philosophical question, I think uh, our generation, the millennials, are extremely fortunate. The, the the generation that was born before us often had to leave India, couldn't do much in India. They were frustrated, and the generation that will be born much later will be born very comfortable, having seen India to be converged. So we get to live through this exciting journey and see the convergence. So in that sense, it's Achyadin. Um, on the question of uh, Sonyanomics versus Modinomics, I think the ma'am here had asked this question. One big point I had mentioned was infrastructure. So I don't want to repeat the point, but infrastructure is one big point. Creating long-term assets. Actually, Modinomics has uh, dou doubled down on, on infrastructure. The rate of highway uh, construction has doubled compared to the last years of the UPA and will further increase because the awards have been even higher than the construction. So you can agree that Vajpayee Modi, there is a yeah airports, river, riverways. After a long time, we are uh, reviving the concept of internal navigation of riverways, um, which is especially suitable for high volume, low value goods where time is not critical. For so so as this gentleman here, Manish has rightly said. Uh, I says because I follow this company, I know this company. They, they already started transporting what is known as, you know, using not just the rivers but the domestic coastline. So you can go from Chennai to Bengal instead of the highway. You can just uh, travel travel it on ship. So we are doing a lot of interesting stuff there. So b besides infrastructure, I think the big key difference is the approach towards governance. So we had a we had a exemptions exception patronage based model there. Uh, it was it was basically corruption. It was justified as we need to raise party funds. Uh, so, no, no. So, okay, maybe it's more than corruption in the sense that it is a lack of discretion. So, Modinomics means a lack of discretion. One of its aspects is no less corruption, but the other aspect is there is more predictability. So, we are going closer towards rule of law. If you want to invest. Um, in, uh, in a, even a smartphone plant, even the tariffs they've done, they've done it in a phase manufacturing program way. So they've already communicated to all manufacturers, Indian, Koreans, Japanese, that we'll have this much of a manufacturing tariff increase after six months, after 12 months, after 18 months. So they can look ahead and they can uh, plan. So we don't have retrospective taxes right now. We've not necessarily deleted the amendment, but we've not used it. So, so there, is an, there is an understanding that just going out and expropriating whatever you want to may work in the short run but has a long term very negative impact on the economic environment. So there is a rule of law system, I think there is infrastructure and I think finally something very interesting is the psychological impact, how to look at India, which is, which is not in policies but see uh, whether again Vajpayee when he said that India will grow at 8% which India did eventually despite the fact that he lost power. He was made fun of saying that Mungeri Lal ki Haseen sapne. This cannot happen. And the view that India cannot become an economic superpower is so kind of intrinsically accepted by us that we, that we actually, even the reason why we are still right now so worried is we are competing with China. Mentally, we are still not competing with America. 
बिकॉज देर इज अ मेंटल ब्लॉक दैट इतना तो रिच हो ही नहीं सकते हम लोग इस लाइफ में सो आई थिंक दू ऑफ द एम्बिशियस व्यू दैट इंडिया कैन ग्रो दैट मैन्युफैक्चरिंग कैन ग्रो दैट देर बी प्रॉस्पेरिटी दैट यू हैव टू कम एंड इन्वेस्ट हियर दैट अग्रेसिव हार्ड सेल्समैनशिप आई थिंक इज अ बिग डिफरेंस yeah i mean I, exactly i don't want to talk about the nuclear angle because it's not about economics but the broader view that india can be prosperous i think that has its own we obviously went through a lot of tough structural reforms so this short term pain long term gain but in the long run this will revive animal spirits but not animal spirits of the time that you just go to a public sector bank get a big loan and then default on it and have an npa not not uh, unsustainable growth but this will help kind of juice up the energy for sustainable growth so i think besides infrastructure besides uh, rule of law corruption there is also psychological angle of how to see growth and how do we see india 10 20 years from now do we always see ourselves as a poor country or do we see ourselves as um, a country which can be genuinely prosperous at the front ranks i remember at 1000 ad we were uh, richer than the uk was then so i i think that impact will also uh, show over time but it's difficult to quantify i will concede that thank you so much thank you thank you thank you, thank you.